You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. The family of God. One of the things I said last week was, in this current time that we're in, in the pandemic with all the socially distanced distancing that we're currently doing and participating in, it makes it more difficult potentially than ever before for us to walk in fellowship with one another, for us to walk in and practice the types of relationships that God calls us to have as his people. So we thought it would be good for us to remind ourselves, to remind each other of who God has made us to be in this time, that our fellowship wouldn't primarily be rooted by whether or not we're all able to be in the same place, that our fellowship wouldn't primarily be rooted in how we feel in the way that we're connected with each other, but that we will be rooted in the word of God, that we as his people are the family of God. We'll be in John chapter 17 today. We'll get it started at verse 20. Again, John chapter 17, we'll get started at verse 20. In this passage, Jesus is praying for his disciples. I want to make sure you get this because to me, this, this, this gives me a little bit more understanding of maybe what's on Jesus' heart as he's praying this. This is the night that he's about to be taken away to be crucified. He's face to face with the fact that he doesn't have much more time with his disciples. He's going to be taken away to be crucified that night. Obviously, he will be raised from the dead and he'll spend a few more days with his disciples after that. But he knows pretty soon he's going to be ascending into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't have much time left with them. So Jesus prays for them in John chapter 17. Let's get it started at, at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So Jesus is very clear about who he's praying about. Yes, he has a limited amount of time left with his disciples, with the 12 who have been walking with him, but he's also saying, but God, I'm not, God, God the Father, I'm not just praying for them. Anyone who will come to faith because of their witness, because of their teaching, because of their ministry, that, which includes all of us believers after them. He says, I'm praying for all of my followers from now on into the future. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is such a huge statement. This is such a huge request, such a huge vision that Jesus has for his followers, past, present, and future, that we would walk in great unity. Last Sunday, I talked about the Trinity and how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are united in love and I established that God created us to extend that love, to invite us into that love. This passage today lets us, gives us a little bit of insight, not just into the love, but what I would refer to as an aspect of that love, and that's oneness. That's unity, and I'll explain what that means and try to define it a little bit later. But first, I want us to make sure we're understanding that what Jesus is saying is the oneness that I have with you, talking to the Father. The oneness that I have with you, that is the oneness that I want them to have with each other. This is an incredibly big statement. God the Father and God the Son have been united together in love for all of eternity past. Where they have always walked in love towards one another. 
where they know each other extremely well. And he's saying that same level of oneness, I want that to be the case within the family of God for all who are adopted by the blood of Christ. This is extremely great. He's saying first, obviously, we need to understand that we are first united to God. And because we are united with him, we are united with one another. There are scriptures that point out to the fact that we have become one with God. The church has become one with, it, with God. And we see throughout the scriptures that the picture, the image of a marriage of, of the people of God being the bride of Christ. And then we being united with him and become one with him. So that's where it starts. But the fact that we have this oneness with him means that now we also have oneness with each other. And we need to learn how to live that out. We need to know what that means practically for us as followers of Jesus. Let's continue on in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. Now, if you were with us last week, we talked a little bit about how God, how God the Son was talking to God the Father, how Jesus was talking to his Father and talking about how they had shared their glory with one another. He was looking forward to ascending into heaven that he might receive the same glory. And here we see Jesus saying, the glory that you have given me, I have given them. So we're being invited into the same type of relationship, the same type of oneness and unity with God as, again, God the Son, Jesus has with his Father, God the Father, that they may be one, he says it again, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. It's just unfathomable requests that Jesus has, that we will become perfectly one. Verse 21 says that we are in him. So again, the biblical view of Christian unity and unity within the family of God is, is the unity within the Trinity spilling over into our relationships. Jesus' desire, Jesus' prayers that we would go through this life with as much oneness with each other as he has with God the Father. So one of the questions that we should obviously ask is what does this oneness look like? How do we know if we are living this out, if we're actually practicing this type of oneness that Jesus is praying that we would have? How do we know? What does it look like? My favorite passage in the Bible to begin to try to answer some of those questions come in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll read verse 12 to give us a little context of what uh, the Apostle Paul is writing about, and then we'll go to verse 26 to maybe get a little bit more practical about what we're being called to. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll start at verse 12. It says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So the Bible gives us a few different pictures for what the family of God, what the church is supposed to look like, how we're supposed to function, and, and a body is one of those pictures. We don't have time to go all the way through chapter 12, but it talks about Jesus being the head of the body and we being, we being his followers make up his body and we being many members, even though there's many members of the family of God, we're all one body. It's a picture of oneness that Paul is showing us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. Again, at the beginning of the verse, he says, for just as the body is one, it has many members. He's saying, even though there are many members in the church, we are to be one. Now let's get more specific in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is a fruit of this oneness that we have. 
the best way I know how to understand oneness is when you love someone so much, you're so close with someone. Maybe that's a good word to, to have in your mind that you're thinking about and wrapping your mind around the concept of oneness. You're so close to someone that when they are hurting, you are hurting. That's a picture of what oneness looks like. When you're so close to someone, if they are honored, if they accomplish something great, now you are rejoicing because they are rejoicing. You're going through life as if you're not just individuals, but now you're, you're tied together. Hopefully you have those, some of those types of relationships in your life. Someone that you care so much about, someone you're so close with, someone you, you love so much. Maybe you know them extremely well, they know you extremely well, and it's to the point now that if there is something that hurts them, you're hurt. If there's something that's causing them to suffer, you're suffering. You're not able to remain emotionally detached from this person because of how close you are with them. That's oneness. The other side of the coin is if, if they have reason to celebrate, if they are honored in some way, you rejoice instinctively. Like it just happens because you are so close with this person. This is what oneness looks like. This is what Paul is revealing to us about oneness, that we, we, we feel pain in their pain. We find reason to rejoice when they are honored or when they are celebrated. It's like you, you, you begin to feel like this person is like an extension of you because of how tied together you are in love. It's a beautiful, vulnerable place to be in. It's a rewarding place where you can be yourself and they can be their self and you really know who they are and they really know who you are and there's not these, these masks that you're wearing and you're doing the tiring work of always having to make sure you're managing your image around them. No, like you, you know them, they know you. You can let your guards down. One of the things for me personally that lets me know, you know, who do I feel most one with or who am I most connected with in this way is like I'm, I don't even have to be on around this person. I can just be off. I don't, I don't have to fabricate any type of energy to, to be, for us to be acceptable in being around each other. I don't have to put a mask on. I don't feel the need to put a mask on. This is what oneness looks like. The family of God is created by God to be a place where people of all backgrounds, all ethnicities, all ways of life, all different types of experience can walk in oneness with each other. The, the, the family of God is a place that can actually live that out because we no longer find our primary identity in what we do, what we've done, what we've experienced, what our background is, what our ethnicity is, or anything like that. We find our primary identity in who, what Jesus Christ has done to rescue us and ultimately unite us to himself. We find our primary identity that now that we are now sons and daughters of God, which means I now have more in common with a Christian from a different background, that's a different ethnicity, that has a different way of life than me, that has different experience from me, that thinks differently from me, that acts differently from me. I have more in common with a Christian that does all those things differently from me than I have with someone who is not a follower of Jesus who might be the same ethnicity as me or think like me and act like me and have the same way of life as me, have the same experiences and background as me. Because why? We are now in the family of God. And thus we find a unity a oneness with other brothers and sisters. What defines me now is my relationship with Christ, that I have been united with him. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this also defines you more than any temporary worldly thing ever could. And thus now we have a oneness, a unity with one another. 
So as Christians, we're able to engage each other in conversation about things that are important and things that matter to you and things that affect you that are deeper than the surface because our aim isn't just to come in here and do the good Christian thing. Our aim isn't just come in here and play the game and do the things that we're told Christians are supposed to do, but rather our aim is to be united with, with God himself, first of all, of course, and also with all others that are united with him in his family. This level of unity is good. It is beautiful. It's what we were designed for. It's, it's liberating. It's a huge blessing to all who are able to enjoy it. To see the church as a place that people, no matter where they come from, no matter where their background is, they, they can walk in loving, close relationships with other Christians because we are united in Christ. I want to be very clear. I want to be very honest that, that in, in the call to follow Christ, that there is a lot of exclusivity. It's very exclusive that only those who, who actually know God are those who believe in Jesus Christ, the son, and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. But it's also extremely inclusive that no matter where you come from, no matter what you have done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what you have experienced, no matter what your previous way of life was, you can find a home and a family in the family of God and walk in unity and oneness with others made in the image of God as we seek to live out the way that he has designed us to live. It's incredibly beautiful. It's a, an incredible blessing to be a part of such a family. And as I was thinking about what is required of us to try to pursue this, I was reminded of uh, my wife and I, we bought our, our first home in 2019, August of 2019. And I wasn't familiar with, with real estate or, or buying property or anything like that. And so I was starting to get used to the market uh, a little bit. And if you've, if you've had that same experience, maybe you're looking at a different house, you see a house and it's like, oh, that's great. I think that's it. I, th I think that's it. I think that's the one that's got everything I, I, I want. And then you look at the price and you're like, I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's the one. I don't think that's the one. And maybe you have that, if you're like me, you have that experience quite a few times. And, and eventually I, I got to the place that, that I'm like, actually, what, what I was wanting, what I was envisioning is going to cost me more than I thought it was going to cost. The thing that I've been de desiring, the thing I thought I, 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 I'm in pursuit of is going to cost me more than I am ready to pay for it at this time. It looks good. I can kind of see myself in. I imagine how it would be and how it would feel to live there, kind of get my hopes up time and time again, even without trying to then you're hitting the face with the reality that the cost of it is very high. When it comes to the church displaying and living out the unity that God has for us, I think oftentimes we love the idea of the church being a place where Christians are close to each other and we can remain connected. We love the idea of the church being a place where everyone can belong, where we can be so be united in the way that Jesus talks about in John chapter 17. We love all those things and we rightly get our hopes up about how beautiful fellowship within the family of God can be. But if you're like me, when we start living this thing out, when we start pursuing that type of oneness within the church, some of us begin to realize that this, this, this body, this family that Jesus is praying for and the type of oneness that Jesus is praying for us to have costs more than we thought it was going to cost. That it costs more of us than we anticipate. So we actually have this gap that we're working with. This, this gap between what we desire to have and what we're actually willing to pay to get there. 
And a lot of us right now, if you've been around our church for a while, you're, you, you've been spending a lot of time trying to navigate, what do I do with that gap? What do I do with the distance between what, what, what I desire to see and the fact that I'm not seeing it in the way that I, I want to because of how much it costs? Why is the cost of this type of unit in the church higher than we often expect? Because I think we often want this to happen naturally or organically, I think is the word we often use. But family, that's like if I told you that I wanted to have a beautiful garden and be able to enjoy all the vegetables, all the vegetables and all the fruit of it, but I didn't want to cultivate it. It's like saying, I, I want to be able to enjoy the, this, this garden in my yard. Maybe, maybe I tilled the soil. Maybe I set the parameters of it. And I put myself in a place where it's like, okay, this is where I want the garden to be. But I didn't do the ongoing work of cultivating it. Sooner or later, you find out you'll reap what you sow. Sooner or later, we arrive at the conclusion that we reap what we sow. In our life groups and in our, and in our fellowship in general, I would desire for us to have a, a firm understanding that our oneness, our fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ is something that needs to be cultivated. If we're going to have the type of depth of relationship that Christ is praying for us to have in John 17, we can't only have surface level conversations. This is very important. Let's actually be about what Jesus desires for us. In our life groups and fellowship outside of life group or with any other follower of Jesus, don't be content to only talk about surface level things, surface level struggles, surface level sins, because you will reap what you sow. If we desire deeper than the surface relationships, we can't have only on the surface conversation and engagement, right? This only makes sense. We will always reap what we sow. If whenever people ask you how you're doing, you either A, always give a short answer, or B, you kind of gotten good enough where you can kind of share some things that people think are beneath the surface when you're actually still keeping yourself very guarded and still keeping people at arm's length. Maybe for us that means we don't share our fears, we don't share our dreams, we don't share our, our longings, or whatever that might be for you. But if that's the case, then don't be surprised if you're also like, uh, I don't know, I feel like we're not really connecting with people here. If that's you, you're reaping what you sowed. You actively chose this. You actively took steps in this direction. I know some of us come from the blessed and highly favored church background, amen? amen. Well, when people ask you how you were doing, the first thing that comes to your mind is some type of Christian or some type of feel-good cliche. That when people try, are trying to check in on you, somehow we've spiritualized not actually sowing into having deep and meaningful relationships within the church. And we spiritualize it. We've made it seem like what we're actually doing is really believing in God and really trusting in God and really holding on in faith when actually we're keeping everyone at arm's length and we're not in any way pursuing the type of oneness that Jesus calls us to have in John chapter 17. So, so under, under the mask of actually being holy, we're doing the opposite of what Jesus calls us to do, disguised as faith in God disguised as believing what, what God calls us to believe. When we do this, we're limiting our experience of the unity in the family of God. But I would say even more importantly than that, we're also misrepresenting God because he wants our unity to reflect his unity. 
I know I said last week that, I, that the relationships within the family of God are not primarily about us, but they're primarily about God. That goes for the way that we love each other and how much love we have for each other and the, and the ways that we show love to each other, but also goes, it also speaks to the unity that we have. It's not primarily about us. Jesus said in that passage in John chapter 17 that the world may know that you have sent me. He's saying, I want them to walk in this perfect oneness so that the world that sees them will see the love, will see the unity that we have with one another and believe that Jesus' claims are real, is what he is saying. This is what he is saying is at stake with our unity. Or maybe a better way to say it is he's saying this is the opportunity that we actually have if we walk in the unity that he has designed for us to walk in. When we do this, again, we either are stewarding well or not stewarding well our call to reflect his unity. And I want to make this as simple as I can. Our refusal to consistently be open and honest with other believers is choosing to fight against what Jesus is praying for us to be or who Jesus is praying for us to be and how he is praying for us to interact with each other. And you should think long and hard about that, especially if you're good at going ghost from brothers and sisters in your life that you're in fellowship with. You should ask yourself, what is it that I am not believing or trusting in that makes it so easy for me to only truly pursue oneness, only truly pursue unity with other believers when it feels good to me? You should do some soul searching. You should ask the Holy Spirit to search you and show you what's actually going on in your heart that what caused you to refuse to walk in step with what Jesus is praying for, for us in John chapter 17. And I'm pressing this point so much because one of the sad things that I found out in leading our church these past seven plus years is that many of us are in denial of the fact that we actually cultivate our own loneliness. One of the sad realities is that we often, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes actively in, or actively in denial of the fact that we actually cultivate our own loneliness. Let me try to explain what I mean. We oftentimes aren't committed to designated times of fellowship with other believers. And I know a lot of times for right now, we have to do that virtually, of course. We rarely spontaneously try to fellowship with believers. So we, we're not committed to, the, to the, the set designated times, and we don't kind of create spontaneous times oftentimes. We keep conversations on the surface. And then we feel like the reason we aren't really connected with people in our church is because people aren't reaching out to us enough. I have seen this over and over and over again. When you think about it logically, it actually doesn't make sense. That even though we're not committed in any way to pursuing this level of oneness with other believers, it is very easy. That gap I talked about earlier, the easiest thing to do is to blame other people for the gap. The easiest thing to do is to blame other people for the gap between what, what we're currently experiencing and walking in and the, and the nature of our relationships and what God calls us to. That's the easiest thing to do. And it leads us to be in denial and it just shreds fellowship apart. Because now we're blaming people for things that they have not done, which makes fellowship even harder. Because now you're, to some degree, you're against them, and now it's everyone's fault, and you're the one that's doing it right. It just rips apart the fabric that is necessary for us to truly walk in unity and oneness with one another. I want to help some of us. I say this to help us because we are sabotaging, sabotaging our connectedness within the church while believing the lie that it's primarily because of everyone else. 
And I was talking about this sermon uh, with Delisha during our teaching team meeting this past week. She told me about her relationship with Talisa, who's in her life group. She said that the two of them ended up having to have a conversation with each other where it's like, you know what, we, we haven't been committing to sisterhood and fellowship uh, the way that we should, so we're going to kind of set some rules in place here. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, one of the rules that she said, they, they, this was, I believe, before COVID, and they lived pretty close to each other, uh, was, all right, we're now giving each other rights that we just can pop up at each other's house whenever. We can just pull up whenever we want to pull up just to spend time with each other. This is just a rule that they set up for themselves. Just randomly pull up unannounced. And if we're struggling with something, we have to tell each other. We have to tell each other. And I was asking Delisha, well, how, you know, how did that go? How, what, what was that like? And she was like, well, at first, and it was just like scripted. It was just like, hey, um, I don't really want to tell you this, but I said I got to do it, so I'm going to do it. This is what's going on. And then continued. She was like, and you can see my phone. That's just, that's just what it was. I, I don't want to do it, but I'm going to do it. Here it is. Over and over and over again. And she said it was basically like a script. They did it because they knew they needed to be intentional about cultivating oneness. And then Delisha told me that now there's been, now when there's something that's going on that she needs to share, she finds herself hitting Talisa up a lot more naturally. A lot, it comes a lot more natural to her now. It feels like the thing that she desires to do and the thing that she needs to do versus her just reading a script or, or sending a script to her. It's more like, girl, I got to tell you what's going on with me is the way Delisha described it to me. What started out as a script turned into a more natural, deep, and close relationship. I'll tell you another story. Uh, this was about, oh my gosh, this actually started close to eight years ago today. I just realized today is my boy's birthday. Today's 17? Today's actually my boy's birthday. So um, I have, did not say happy birthday to them this morning. Boys, if you're hearing this, I'm very sorry, and happy birthday. That said, when they were first born, uh, so Hannah um, is, is, is very good at just expressing affection to uh, our children. And at the time, I was not. It was not very natural for me to tell my boys that I love them. For whatever reason, and the Lord's just done a lot of work in my life since then, but for whatever reason at that time, especially with other males, it was just difficult for me to say that I love you. And I knew, I felt confident, convinced that my boys needed to hear from me that I love them but it was very difficult for me for whatever reason. It just was not a comfortable thing for me to do on any type of a consistent basis. But I knew that it's something that needed to happen. So I just started saying it. And at first, when I started telling them I loved them, it, it felt unauthentic. It felt laborious. It felt like I was reading a script. It, it felt like I was taking someone else's words and nothing in my heart was actually moving through them. But somewhere between the first time I said it and the hundredth time I said it, it began to become something that was pouring out of me and expressing something that was genuinely inside of me the whole time. The first time I did it, I was just sowing seeds. The hundredth time that I did it, I was reaping the harvest and the fruit of the seeds that had been sown, of what I had been cultivating by what felt like just reading a script the whole time. Why would I bring that up? Because for some of us, everything that Jesus is calling us to do in John chapter 17 don't come, doesn't come naturally to us at all. Maybe there's some type of fear that's hindering us. Maybe there, there's a, an uneasiness. Maybe there's just a lack of motivation that we feel. I want to invite some of us, some of you, before your next life group meeting, the best thing that you will be able to do or the best thing that you could do is write out a script of things that you know you should have said a while ago, 
or of things that you know would actually help you cultivate oneness and unity within your life group and then just read it. And I'm asking this to start off just reading. You're just sowing, you're just cultivating oneness within your group. It feels awkward, it feels difficult, it feels laborious at first. But again, as I've been saying earlier, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. And not only do we reap when we sow moving outside of or against what God is calling us to, but we also reap the benefits and get to enjoy the benefits of walking in what God has called us to. This is especially if you're feeling nervous or feel for, especially if there's something you know the Holy Spirit has been calling you to share with your group over a period of time. I'm just inviting you to just write it out as a script. Maybe do it today. Do it days ahead of time. Before you get to that spot where it's two hours before the meeting, you just decide not to go. Write it out. I believe it will be beneficial to you. We can't truly pursue oneness if we don't make the sacrifices that oneness requires. It always requires a sacrifice. And given our fallen sin nature, it will always require sacrifice from us as well. So especially if you do notice fear in your heart, especially if you do notice a lack of motivation within you, I want to encourage you to look directly at our Savior, Jesus Christ. Remembering that the, prime, that the reason he came, among other reasons, is so that we could be united with him and thus united with each other as we are all in Christ, if we are followers of him. He wanted to unite us with himself. He wanted us to be with him. And he came and sacrificed his life that we might know him. And then he calls us to share his love with one another. This is what we talked about last week. But he also calls us to spread and share the unity that we have from him as we see him and, the, and God the Father and share that unity with each other. He came to reconcile and unite us to himself and reconcile and unite us to each other. And here's what I want that to do for us. My hope is that as we consider that, we will, it will come to our minds. We'll be able to clearly see that this must really mean a lot to him that this must really mean a lot to our Savior, that he would come and die to unite us to him and unite us to each other, and that we will be his children. It says that we will sacrifice what is required as well to continue to pursue unity and oneness, to continue to walk in oneness with one another, that we might seek to portray the same unity that God the Father has with God the Son. I want to call us to remember the cost that he paid to make us one with him and one with each other, that we might remain encouraged to pay whatever cost we have to, to walk in the oneness that he has given us. Family, let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful that you sent your son to us, that you might unite us to yourself and allow us access to relationship with you, relationship within the family of God. And God, my prayer I don't know what next steps any of us have to take or all of us have to take. But Father, whatever those next steps are, would you give us courage? Would you empower us by your spirit? Father, I'm not sure exactly what is required of all of us or maybe even what hurdles might be in the way. Father, will you help us to take an honest assessment of do we care about this as much as you do? Do we care about unity and oneness within your family the way that you do? And if not, will you give us a clearer vision, a clearer desire and passion that the people of God, the family of God, would walk in the type of oneness that you desire for us to walk in? Will you help us to care as much about it as you do? 
when you were there praying to your father, when you were there asking him that we will be perfectly one, just like you and the father are one, would you give us that same desire, that same passion, that same drive? And would you remind us of everything that you went through to unite us all together? Father, we can't do this on our own, so we ask that your Holy Spirit would empower us to live this out. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.